Green Left Weekly Radio. There is one newspaper that is independent of powerful interests, and that's Green Left Weekly. It's the people's voice, committed to human and civil rights, environmental sustainability, democracy and equality. It presents ideas mainstream media won't. It's the leading source of local, national and international news analysis and discussion and debate to strengthen the anti-capitalist movement. It exposes the lies and distortions of the power brokers and helps us to better understand the world around us. Good morning, listeners. You are listening to Green Left Weekly Radio with Jacob and Zane in the studio today. Indeed you are. Right, um, so we have a pretty um, gem-packed program today. We have at least two interviews with a potential third one, although regardless if that interview doesn't, um, it's actually going to be one of our former presenters, Dennis, um, who's in the country for it, but he's unsure if he'll be able to make it into the program. And, but what we're going to talk to him about is um, what's happened in Venezuela, the recent developments there, especially with the Constitution. Assembly elections. Yeah. Um, so, but if he doesn't um, turn up, we'll still have a discussion about it, regardless. So, yeah. Word. And uh, it's worth mentioning, as we do every Friday morning, that uh, we're coming at you from the 3CR studios, which is uh, built on the traditional lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. Sovereignty was never ceded, always was, always will be Aboriginal land. Yeah. Okay, um, so I think for the start-up, we're going to be playing... Um, uh, last Friday, there, were, um, there was a rally for Elijah um, held in at Parliament House, which then marched all the way to Flinders Street, um, which attracted over no sermon. So we're going to be playing um, a speech from that protest for the start of the program. Yeah, so this is uh, Sharina Clanton who's uh, speaking at the Justice for Elijah rally last Friday. We are a long way from home, and we thank you for being in solidarity with our mob in Western Australia. From Wangatha Yamaji country in Kalgoorlie, thank you for being here. It means the world that Indigenous and non-Indigenous people are here standing together in unity and saying this is not okay. We do not accept this ruling. Our black children, our black deaths, our black children matter. He chose to put the law into his own hands. It went from manslaughter to driving recklessly causing death. Can you imagine an Indigenous person doing that to a white child? Do you think they'd get away with reckless endangerment, reckless driving causing death? They'd have the whole book thrown at him. There is no justice for our people. When do we get justice? When do we have these courts and judicial systems, the Parliament House, the government, saying that our people's lives are human lives and that they are equal to our white counterparts? When? 
There is no accountability. We hear more about his fear, him having to leave Kalgoorlie, what his oppression and hurt has been, than the oppression and hurt and death of our family members, of our community, of the pain and suffering by his family. What this death represents is that his death represents hundreds and thousands of our Aboriginal youth that go unnamed, that remain silent in our justice system, that get ignored by our mainstream media. Today, the police are hyper-vigilant, hyper-militarised. I don't understand why. This is a peaceful protest. And what our presence here today says, this is not okay. We stand in solidarity with Elijah. We stand in solidarity with our Wangatha Yamaji family in Kalgoorlie. We stand in solidarity with our Indigenous brothers and sisters who are dying in the criminal justice system. We stand in solidarity with our Aboriginal brothers and sisters who are continuing to be ignored and denied justice within the court systems and their rulings. How many more deaths must we endure? How much more grief must we endure? How many more mother's tears must we endure? Because I know for a fact, had this been a non-Indigenous child, we would never hear the end of it. Why are we in the media so suddenly concerned more about the death of an innocent white woman than the death of an innocent black child? He was innocent too. The amount of criminalization that I'm hearing in our community saying that he deserved it and he was a thief. Let me, let me challenge those facts for you. At no point in time in the ruling was it ever proven that he stole the bike. Don't believe what the media want to tell you, how they want to indoctrinate your thinking into thinking that black is criminal. The child was innocent. He was 14 years old. They love to dredge up the past of our black youth, saying that his death was justified, that the killing of him was justified, that he couldn't move past the bike fast enough, so it was justified. The spinal breaking, the back of his spinal cord says otherwise. The brutal murder over his body with a, with a, Four-wheel drive says otherwise. What we say here today with, our, with my beautiful brother and with all of you brothers and sisters is that we stand in solidarity and we stand with peace, but we also stand in resilience and we demand justice. We demand an appeal of the court decision, of the court ruling, 
and that enough is enough. No more black blood, no more blood needs to be spilt for us to be proven or to show that we are human and that we are equal and that we deserve justice and that our deaths and our lives matter. Our deaths, our lives matter. Elijah's lives matter. Our children's lives matter. So that was, um, having been the rally, that was, you know, a very, you know, powerful speech. Um, to talk more about the rally last, you know, Friday, um, it was, you know, the size of the rally was fantastic. And, you know, although what, what is something to note is, you know, the kind of massive kind of police presence of the rally, which is, you know, kind of telling whenever there's always, you know, a rally of, you know, Indigenous people, you know, gathering that somehow the police always, you know, have to be there and, you know, disproportion, um, mm. especially, you know, when we marched all the way to Flinders Street, there was like a row of police horses, you know, all ready to almost block the rally or, although they're in, eventually we did get let in, you know, to basically, you know, hold off, um, to hold a, for the Indigenous community to hold a smoking ceremony at the Flinders Street, sort of Swanson Street intersection. But yeah, it was just quite, you know, shocking that, you know, there was such a massive police presence, um, at that, um, rally. Hmm. Yeah. So, and, um, I think, you know, following on one of the kind of, you know, common themes, you know, from a lot of the speakers is this whole, you know, issue of linking this death to the, you know, the systematic kind of discrimination and dispossession of Aboriginal people. And, you know, one, it was quite powerful. There was another speaker that, you know, said that, you know, the reason why this keeps happening is because the whole justice system wasn't designed for Aboriginal people. You know, it was, it was based, it was, it's a clo, we live in a colonial state and it's always kind of like, you know, important to acknowledge that, especially mm. in, this is why these things can happen because, you know, we live on stolen land that, you know, took away Indigenous people's rights. And it was only just recently, um, it was only, it's only just been recent that, you know, Aboriginal people were treated basically were considered fauna or, you know, basically less than human. <clears throat> hmm. and there's a long way to go, obviously, um, until, yeah, white people in this country, um, treat Aboriginal people with the respect they deserve as the original owners of the land and as 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 equal human beings. It's really basic fundamental stuff. Mm. But yeah, the, the the white man's law system is archaic with the the court system designed to be like a boat and 
and, and justices wearing wigs and like ye olde English stuff like that. It's mm. just makes no sense. It was yeah. a there's not a single Aboriginal person on that jury that uh, convicted the the driver of dangerous driving, mm. occasioning death, and didn't even convict him of manslaughter when he's obviously chased someone down at mm. high speed in a four-wheel drive. It's disgraceful. Um, just to I'll make a just to end it. I'll make a quick announcement. Um, there's way there's going to be a way of which you can support Elijah's family. Um, yeah. There is actually a fundraiser being organised um, next Sunday on Sunday, August the 13th, um, and it's going to be happening from 5 to 10pm at the Bella Union, um, which is at level one of the Shrades Hall, Carlton South, entrance off um, Ligon Street. So, yeah, you can probably find it on Facebook by searching fundraiser, um, Sir justice for Elijah. Yeah, cool. Good stuff. Yeah. All right. Um, well, I don't know if uh, Comrade Dennis is going to make it in today, so might just play a quick announcement, and then maybe we could have a bit of a chat about the Constituent mm. Assembly elections in, in Venezuela and what's been going on there. Mm. you got to remember, Nainok's a special day for us, fellas. That's a reminder who we are. Every year for NAIDOC Week, 3CR Community Radio gives voice to our Indigenous brothers and sisters through Beyond the Bars, Australia's only live prison broadcast. I am a black, black man. NAIDOC means a lot to me. It's about identity and also about past and present. NAIDOC means a lot to me for my family and my people. And the people forgetting about our rights. You can access audio from current and past Beyond the Bars broadcasts via the 3CR website. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash beyond the bars and either listen to or download audio from Australia's only live prison broadcasts. Happy Nadoff! Green Left Radio. Alright, you're listening to 3CR. It is 7.14am on Friday morning. So we um so now we're gonna probably have a bit of a discussion of um Venezuela. Um basically last Sunday, um or over the weekend, um the constitute kind of assembly elections were held and actually actually since Zane kind of knows a bit more about it than me, could um Zane, would you be able to kind of explain to, you know, listeners what actually the sort of implications and what it actually the process actually is? Yeah, sure. So, um, as people would be aware, there's been a bunch of economic problems um, in Venezuela, high inflation, uh, the the opposition are holding violent protests in the street, Molotov cocktails are being thrown, so there's a, a lot of political kind of chaos and instability in Venezuela at the moment, and a lot of... Um, I guess, economic issues that need to be resolved. So uh, the the president of Venezuela, Nicolas Maduro, has called a constituent assembly as a way of trying to resolve um, some of the issues that are happening there and move forward. So the way it works is there are national elections to vote people into the constituent assembly, and it consists of 545 elected members 
uh, a third of the constituent assembly are elected from social sectors, so um, trade unions, women's organisations, indigenous organisations, peasants' organisations, and um, yes, that so that's that constituent assembly then has the task of <coughs> amending or rewriting the Venezuelan constitution as they see fit. And so that body has been elected um, last weekend and in, in Venezuela. And, yeah, and, and I guess the, the, the significance of the constituent assembly process in Venezuela... Like, if you compare it to their northern neighbours in the USA, the USA haven't changed their constitution in 230 years. So if you think about how much has changed in terms of what is a normal way of having a functioning democracy in the last 230 years, that sort of stuff should be reflected in the constitution. So, um, yeah, so it's... I don't think there's anything... Um, undemocratic about having a body which modifies the constitution and the Venezuelan opposition boycotted this anyway to to discuss this further we have uh, Comrade Dennis here who has actually spent some time in Caracas and is someone who is fairly well informed about Venezuelan politics and indeed world politics I would go so far as to say so welcome Dennis right, sure. thanks and it's good to be back on the Green Left Radio after well, basically more than a year of a hiatus uh, well um, first of all I wanted to start with uh, actually just, uh, talking about the Constitution Assembly which you mentioned before just about its sheer diversity because the um, the elections that took place uh, on um, on Sunday, July 30th, uh, were, there, were there to elect 545 uh, members uh, overall right across the country, and that's uh, 364 uh, members uh, by region across um, across all of all regions of uh, Venezuela. So that's at least one for each municipality, and two more for each municipality, which is um, a state uh, capital. As well as that, there were 173, 173 seats allocated specifically to different social sectors across uh, uh, Venezuela. So, which you mentioned before, it's the workers, um, farmers, uh, people with disabilities, students, uh, pensioners, um, the communes, the communal councils, as well as as well as uh, the business sector. And just this Tuesday, uh, Tuesday, uh, Wednesday. The indigenous people, um, the, the, the different uh, indigenous groups uh, also voted for their separate um, members of the constituent uh, assembly, uh, sort of in the separate assemblies in order to, uh, in order to ensure that the new Venezuelan constitution would uh, actually receive the blessing of the, of the traditional owners of the, uh, uh, of, of the land. Hmm. So we're talking about a very, you know, uh, not just a very democratic, but also a very broad, a very, di- a very diverse um, uh, elected uh, elected body, and one that um, uh, one re- one that really hasn't um, one that hasn't really been seen almost anywhere else uh, uh, in the w- in the world uh, lately. 
Um, well, I, I guess that's uh, one of the biggest uh, issues, or one of the biggest uh, concerns that has that have, that have been raised with the with the election of of the of the Constituent Assembly this time is whether or not uh, President Nicolas Maduro, who was who, as we know, was democrat- was democratically elected by the majority of uh, Venezuelans, whether or not he actually acted in the most uh, Democratic way when calling for this constituent assembly, as there are there are several uh, sort of unclear points uh, uh, about this. <clears throat> under the under the currently existing constitution of the Bolivarian Republic of Venezuela, which was um, uh, which was actually uh, written uh, written um, debated approved and ratified in 1999, um, under President uh, Hugo Chavez, under that constitution. With, under the Articles uh, 347 and, three, and uh, 348, there are several ways in which the country's constitution can be changed. None of them, none, none, um, none of them actually, none of them specify that. Um, um, none of them, none of them specify uh, that. You know, that, in, that the uh, that the president that the president cannot change the constitution. Rather, it says that. Uh, the only the only elected body which can change the constitution or which uh, which can rewrite it is a national constitutional assembly which can be called by the president of the republic or by the national assembly or by the or, or, or by the national assembly but only with the approval of the supreme court now unfortunately in the case of uh, venezuela the national assembly has been uh, held in contempt uh, of court for the last uh, several months yeah, can you just briefly comment on on like what what would be the Australian equivalent mm. of the reason that that um con- that that national assembly has been held in contempt of court? Mm, right. Well, uh, imagine uh, Im- imagine for a second that um, several members of parliament were found to have received were, were found to have um, uh, basically conducted. Um, Method, well, conducted illegal and illicit methods of uh, acquiring votes uh, for the in, in their constituencies during the election. So basically, so basically engaging in vote buying. So vote, vote buying. Vote, so, so vote, vote buying, basically. So say there were several members of like the Liberal Party, for example, who had been mm. engaged in vote buying. Yes. And then what? What would be the Australian equivalent of the? Liberal Party's response to those people having been found to have engaged in vote buying. Mm. Well, effectively, um, uh, the, the, the equivalent of what happened in, nas- in the Venezuelan National Assembly was uh, would be that Liberal Party simply ignores uh, the uh, simply ignores the issue, and uh, the Senate, uh, sorry, the House of Representatives Speaker, the Senate Speaker, which simply rati- simply ratifies them and allows them to sit. Together with uh, other other members uh, of parliament, so basically completely breaching mm. the electoral laws uh, of the country, and this is exactly what has happened. Mm. In and completely the, ignoring the Supreme Court when exactly. they said everyone else is allowed to be part of this government, mm-hmm. but not those three people who are guilty of vote violence. Yes, exactly. And actually, and we also we have to note that uh, two of those members of parliament belong to the opposition, but one actually does belong to. Uh, to, to, to the, the party of government, to uh, the, uh, to the United Socialist Party of uh, Venezuela. Okay. So this is so. This is not a. Uh, it's not a partisan. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yes. 
Um, now, to, now, to the issue of, I, I, th- I think one, one, one more issue that we, need, that we actually really need to discuss is uh, actually the level of participation which we have seen with Venezuelan, uh, with the Constituent Assembly mm. in Venezuela. Uh, over uh, just uh, just um, under 8,100,000 people took, took part in the elections for the uh, Constituent Assembly on uh, Sunday. And we're, and we're also waiting for the votes to come in. Uh, for the, all the indigenous candidates as well. But this represents uh, just around about 42% of all registered voters in Venezuela. Uh, well, this may sound, um, uh, this, this may sound a bit underwhelming, especially considering how, um, high the votes have traditionally been in Venezuelan elections. Uh, we have to remember that uh, many other uh, elections in the region, especially like presidential elections in countries like Colombia or, or, or Chile, often receive even even lower level of participation among the electorate, uh, and the same, absolutely the same, the same thing can be said of the congressional elections in the United States and the and the elections to the European Parliament uh, in the mm. EU. So, purely from the perspective and I guess the difference between those elections is that the opposition was boycotting the constituent assembly elections, mm. whereas typically in a presidential election, you will have a nominally right wing and a nominally left-wing, whatever our criticisms of how right or left-wing those two parties are, but Mm. you've kind of got two competing sides, whereas here it was one-sided because the right-wing in Venezuela instructed all of their supporters, don't participate in this. Mm. That's right. That's also kind of artificially makes it a heck of a lot lower Mm. participation. Exactly. Yes, exactly. Um and, and ironically, ironically, so, oh, so while this, um, while the Constituent Assembly attracted more than eight, more than, more than eight million votes across the country, uh, about two weeks earlier, the opposition held their own sort of unofficial plebiscite or, or referendum on whether or not the Constituent Assembly election should be held, and um, uh, the resulting, uh, and that resulted in about 7.1 million votes uh, being uh, being cast. To say say no from the opposition side. Well, so they claim anyway. So they claim, yeah, yeah, certainly, because uh, from um, the statistics which um, myself and other comrades discovered uh, from the day, it was it, it would have been simply impossible for uh, seven million people to be able to vote across across the country in in that many electoral centres. I think, uh, uh, sort of, according to some estimates, it w- it would have meant that every it, that. Uh, uh, either, either it took just five seconds for every single person to, uh, you know, register the name, go to the booth, sign the paper, cast it in, and, and walk walk out. It took it either, either they took them. It took them five seconds to do all that, or uh, most uh, most people voted at least three or four times in elections. Mm. So there is. Mm. Uh, uh, I have a quick question. Um, what what was the um, though this is something we discussed in the show before, but I keep forgetting. What was the opposition's reasoning for boycotting the these elections? Um, I remember one of them was um, that they were sort of basically trying to say that, oh, yes, Maduro doesn't have the right to call the election, which, again, you've sort of disproven by, you know, um, putting up the whole point of what it actually says in the Constitution. Mm. Well, uh the opposition has kept referring to articles, as I said before, articles um, of the Venezuelan, Article 347 and, article, and 348 of the Venezuelan Constitution, where they, spe- where um, 
they where they claim they claim is that you know the pres the president cannot call on the constituent assembly without the approval of the national uh, assembly and as we know national assembly which has been controlled by the uh, opposition since December 2005 you know a bit of a strange democracy when a bit of a strange democracy when they get a uh, a president with the with the with the with the opposition controlling the, uh, the parliament without the approval of the of the assembly there can be you know they they cannot they maduro had no rights to call the uh, the constitutional assembly as we discussed, as we, as we said before uh but with the assembly not you know not um fulfilling its own its own fuck its own faction, uh, functions um the opposition really had no uh, really had no moral or legal authority to uh stand in the way stand in the way of uh, Nicolas Maduro calling on the election so if the if the opposition controlled national assembly in Venezuela backs down and did what the supreme court said and that is you can have your government but just not those two people of yours that have been found to have engaged in vote buying, if they backed down and did what the Supreme Court said, then they could have a validly operating mm. parliament and they could have blocked Maduro. Um, they could have blocked the Constituent Assembly from going ahead. Theoretically, yes. Theoretically, yes. Uh, but what we have to remember about the Venezuelan opposition is that it is a... I mean, it's a myriad, it's a myriad and a very sort of um, strange mixture of uh, different political forces and different sort of political factions right across uh, sort of the the Venezuelan spectrum. You know, it's it combines it combines together it combines uh, together political you know political parties that existed you know in the in the in sort of the pre the uh, the pre Chavez era. It combines sort of new actors and uh, new new parties like. Uh, Popular, popular, which is a hard right party that's, um, whose, whose main leader has been Leopoldo Lopez, so the, um, who, who, uh, who, who is currently serving time in prison for inciting riots that killed 43 people in February 20, uh, 2014. It includes other uh, former presidential candidate Enrique uh, uh, Capriles and among, among, among many others. So we're talking about, uh, we're to actually talking about you know, a political coalition, a highly dysfunctional political coalition, which uh, does not have a concrete economic program, which does not have uh, any kind of um, uh, any proper political structure to itself, so and which definitely, certainly, does not have uh, anywhere near the support uh, that uh, the current the current uh, government. Of uh, Venezuela, government of Maduro uh, has even, and this is saying something because yes, we have to we have to admit um, uh, Nicolas uh, Nicolas Maduro on uh, according to last uh, sort of estimates only has the really approval rating of um, anywhere between 25 and uh, and 30 percent, which is still higher than most, uh, which which is still higher than almost all the neoliberal governments in um, in in Latin America. Uh, and uh, a lot higher than the approval rating of the of the opposition uh, in Venezuela. So, so the fact of the uh, the fact of the matter is, Venezuelan Venezuelan opposition is unable. It's re it's really um, unable to organize itself in order to 
uh, even sort of run a run a run an elected body where, where they have where they have an absolute majority, let let alone uh, you know trying to run a trying to run a country if they ever if they ever um, are able to uh, you know this. Take, uh, take power there. Yeah. So it's kind of convenient for them to defy the Supreme Court and then sit there and go, oh, Nicolas Maduro's a dictator, he won't let us form government, mm. uh, because if they actually did what the Supreme Court was saying, stood down those couple of deputies and took up government, then they would actually have to govern. Exactly, exactly, yeah. Mm. yeah I think it's um, one of the, the things, though, is like, you know, what... The kind of basic argument, you know, for solidarity, you know, with Venezuela is, you know, is, you know, because, you know, Maduro's approval reigns are quite low. There clearly is some kind of discontent and a lot of yeah. the opposition mm-hmm. is drawing support from the general discontent. Um, although because that's in the context of a very kind of polarizing kind of economic crisis. Um, but you know, the basic thing, for you know, for the you know the le- position for the left to take is you know, you know we have to defend you know the gains of the Bolivian Revolution, which the opposition wants to roll back, and also the fact that you know if you have you can have all the criticisms of the, the Maduro government um, you want, but the reality is the opposition represent no concrete alternative. In fact, what they represent is actually much worse. Than what, especially since you know their behaviour, spe- that you know what they do, their actions speak for themselves. They are burning left-wing prote- protesters. Mm. Like you know, if they, you know, if they, if they, if they can do that as a minority, imagine what they can do if they actually got state power. <laughs> and one thing I guess. Um, oops, sorry, I'll just turn your mic back on here. Yeah. Oh, sorry. Uh, one thing I guess also we have to really be clear and conscious uh, about is that um, uh, the. The the turnout of eight million people that we saw over the weekend, or over eight million people. Now that vote does not directly represent, uh, you know, support from for for Chavismo, let alone support for Nicolas Maduro. Rather, uh, this vote um, uh, represents the rejection of uh, the vast majority of, of you know, the rejection of you know a vast number of uh, uh, Venezuelans. Of the tactics of the opposition, so this was uh, as much of a vote against the violence perpetrated, uh, you know, by this uh, by this um, uh, by the opposition, as it was, um, you know, in, in support of uh, uh, the new constitution assembly and of the resolution of the economic crisis, which currently persists uh, in Venezuela. Mm. So this constitution, this constitution assembly really should be seen sort of as a real sort of opportunity to. To confront, not just to confront the right, the U.S. monster right-wing opposition, but also to actually begin solving uh, the economic uh, crisis in a way, in a way that ensures that the poorest members of Venezuelan society do not suffer from, um, do not do not suffer uh, the consequences, but but rather it is the richest part of uh, uh, richest part of Venezuela and the richest social uh, social class. Which uh, should be, should bear the uh, bear the brunt because we also have to admit that um, uh, there has been an economic war in Venezuela these past uh, uh, several years, and it has been led by sec- by business se- business sectors aligned with the opposition and aligned with the interests uh, of the United States. Hmm. 
Hmm. All right, well, I might just play an announcement, and then we've got um, ASU activists, uh, David Nunn's, uh, in the in the studio to talk about the upcoming uh, busk for free speech in Moreland. So and he's also a resident of Moreland as well. <laughs> yes, indeed. And and uh, council uh, candidate from last year's election. Unsuccessful at that. Ah, it's uh, it's a tough tough wicket at times. All right, uh, stick around. You're on three CR. Do you live in Darabin? Darabin Council is here to help you in whichever language you speak. If you have a question about your rates, rubbish collection or any council matter, call us on our multilingual telephone line on 8470-8470 to speak with one of our officers or an interpreter. Or you can visit us at our office in Preston, Reservoir or Northcote. Call us on 8470-8470 or come and see us. A 3CR supporter. You are listening to Green Left Radio on the Friday Morning Breakfast Show, broadcast live on 3CR Radio, 855 AM digital and streaming live on 3cr.org.au. Green Left Radio is brought to you by the Green Left Weekly newspaper, providing a weekly source of alternative information which aims to inspire action to put people and the environment before profit. Subscribe to Green Left Weekly by visiting the website at greenleft.org.au. Or call 1-800-634-206. For new subscribers, it's only $10 for the first seven issues. Alrighty, welcome back. You are tuned to Green Left Radio on 3CR. And we have myself, Zane, Jacob, Dennis, and we've also got David Nunns here this morning. Good morning. Uh, and what's your, your ASU rank and file member or activist? What's your... I, uh, I work as an organiser with the Victorian Tasmanian branch of the ASU. Oh, yeah. Um, but more importantly, in relation to the debate that's going on in the City of Moreland, I'm a long-term resident of the City of Moreland and uh, I was a candidate in last year's council elections as well. Yeah, cool. All right. Uh, and so there's a busk for free speech happening on uh, on Sunday. What do you think of these raft of laws that have come up at Moreland Council for renewal? Yeah, look, I think they're pretty poorly drafted. They're, um, they're clearly a bit of a knee-jerk reaction to um, some of the events that took place last year with the uh, anti-fascist, anti-Nazi rallies uh, in Coburg. Um, there seems to be a bit of a... Uh, there's a view out there um, that uh, the rally itself was... There were some forces, Victoria Police, for example... Um, and the council were concerned about that particular rally and uh, there was a question asked at the time about whether or not the rally could essentially be shut down um, and it became apparent that uh, the City of Moreland had no legal power um, to stop um, that kind of gathering, a rally, for example. So since then, it's become pretty clear that the internal machinations of the uh, City of Moreland um, have got to the stage where they've proposed some draft local laws um, to um, do a number of things. One is to consolidate uh, three separate laws, a meeting procedure law, a general law and an environmental and heritage protection law. Um, and that sounds pretty OK on the face of it. You know, seems like a fairly basic administrative task, uh, combine three documents into one. Uh, but when, of course, you look at the detail, um, that's where the devil is always to be found. Um, and uh, what we think um, is going to happen, and certainly some people at council meetings last year 
that were particularly vocal about uh, issues of permits. Um, the general thrust seems to be, and this is not uncommon, uh, and you see it certainly at the City of Melbourne, this regulation of public space. So mm. you seek permission to use the public space for whatever reason it may be. Now, that reason could be to hand out leaflets about the benefits of uh, subscribing to um, Buddhism. Uh, it could be uh, it could be a table, a stall in the Coburg Mall opposing the Adani mine. Um, these matters would require a permit. Um, in some cases, but not all, some cases they would require a hefty um, uh, payment. So uh, at the moment, uh, fi- uh, at the moment, permits are around about the 150 to 300 dollar mark. There's some that are 500 dollars. Uh, there's a variety of charges, but again, we um, seeing in their draft laws um, the regulation of public space and public activity, particularly political activity, and ultimately seeking permission for you to be able to do that through the first tier of local government, um, first tier of government, I should say, um, and that is a major concern. Um, Our uh, activity on Sunday, Busk for Free Speech, is called that simply because if you want to busk, um, you'll need to get a permit. They talk about being eligible to busk in prescribed areas, but of course council has the total and complete authority to determine what a prescribed area is. Um, so again, the devil is in the detail. Hmm. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's concerning. So we have a busk for free speech. Um, this is this Sunday at 12am at Bunjik Town Hall. And for those listeners that have uh, some understanding of local Brunswick history in particular, um, it's right next to the Noel Coonahan Gallery, who was a... Uh, uh, Activist in the 30s, 40s, 50s, um, until he passed on. Um, certainly involved with the Communist Party um, in in that that era, and was known known particularly in the local area for putting himself inside a cage on the back of a truck to demonstrate that he had no free speech at the time, uh, because they were trying to stop um, rallies in Brunswick at that mm. time. Mm. So. The more things change, the more they stay the same. <laughs> Just a comment on the um, whole um, sort of um, notion that, you know, of prescribed areas of busking. There was sort of a, because I was actually at the council meeting, because um, I was part of the original action where we were protesting against these amendments to the local laws, there was actually this kind of weird argument kind of being put forward um, in defence of this whole idea of um, prescribed areas for busking, and that was this notion that you know basically oh yes if we don't have prescribed areas for busking what's going to stop someone from busking outside a kind of local residential area like your house for example and with, with a french horn was yeah with a french horn um which is a completely i think what my general comment on these law on these laws and um is Basically, I think they kind of like, you know, it sort of betrays this, it sort of basically indicates to me that this distrust of ordinary people to be able to self-police themselves. Like I think on the whole issue of stores, I actually think as someone who does regular stores myself in different suburban areas, you know, there is actually, we actually do self-police ourselves. Like if, you know, if I notice that this refugee activist group is doing a store at this time, this location that I was you know, thinking of doing a store at that time, that I would move to another area or simply do it at a different time. We're not going to just or, you know, because, you know, one of the other responses for this why we need um, parents of stores is, oh, yes, what if everyone sets up a store at Victoria Street in Coburg? You know, I've lived in Coburg for the past several months and I've been around the area for a while. That has never happened ever. Like, there's never been 
oversupply of stores happening. And also, there's also the case that you know, um, you know, when there's whenever there's kind of a campaign, it's not just sort of left groups that do stores. It is actually whenever some kind of campaign you know, pops up like some kind of issue local area, people have the right to simply set up a store and start campaigning about it. They don't, shouldn't have to go through this sort of bureaucratic kind of process of applying for permits. Yeah, absolutely. And um, I was involved in the campaign with a number of residents uh, a number of years ago for high school for Coburg, and we would regularly set up um, fundraising barbecues or stalls or um, uh card tables to get people to sign petitions or to buy a sticker and help fund the campaign. Now in its original proposal, uh, if we were to do that under this new law, we would have to spend $300 just to get a permit um, just from a, from a starting position. So $300 goes a long way um, when mm. you want to get a sticker on. Mm. Um, so that's, um, that's, a, that's a bit of a concern. One thing that um, uh, is clearly a concern to the City of Moreland and I'll just in, uh, infuse a little bit of jocularity into this discussion because it can be a bit dry when you go through <laughs> these hefty documents. Um, there's a proposed local law that says commercial fitness trainers must not engage in aggressive or intimidating behaviour or cause a nuisance. Now, I'm not too sure, but I think I've got my finger on the pulse in the city of Moreland. I don't reckon there's a problem with aggressive and intimidating <laughs> fitness trainers, quite frankly. Yeah. <laughs> it's just ridiculous. <laughs> Bit of a red herring. Oh, just uh, unbelievable. I mean, there might be aggressive, intimidating fitness trainers in other municipalities. Not too sure what it's like (laughs) in the city of Yarra, but certainly in the city of Moreland, it's not an issue, surely. Mm. But here we have a draft local law, um, and it just seems bizarre. Well, well, you've got to accommodate for something, you know, even if it's not an issue now, it could become an issue, so you've just got to plan ahead. I I trust fitness trainers, and I trust that, by and large, that they will act appropriately, yeah? (laughs) (laughs) But but why just fitness trainers, like? (laughs) Why why fitness trainers in particular? Are we we talking about some specific fitness trainers? (laughs) Well, I mean, another another group that's been singled out in some of these laws is the Grey Nomads and the Backpackers, because... I live not far from Coburg Lake, and at that sure. council meeting on July 12, <laughs> there was allegations made that there's constantly hordes of like, camper vans and wicked camper vans at Coburg Lake Reserve. Mm. Like, no, there's not. <laughs> I drive past there if you all live the in, time. <laughs> and certainly, and if you live in the area, you know the area, and you know um, that that is a bit of a furphy. It's yeah. there's you may have some people occasionally, you know. Um, hmm. Parking in a car park for you know a period of time, but is it a public nuisance? Is it is it something that to such a degree that we now oblige um, an international traveller who's come to Australia because they actually like the place need to apply for a permit and then even more so attach a dollar figure to it? Mm. So it's a strange perverse thing that we've got where um, the, the the city of Moreland and many people in Moreland like to call it the Republic of Moreland for very good reasons. You know there are many people in that area that are good people, progressive people, seeking to change society for the better on a whole range of fronts, and yet we have free speech not essentially being free Mm. and being regulated by the first tier of government uh, in this nation, which is just something that I find offensive. Mm. Uh, And Steve Roach, who uh, works at the CFMEU and has been an ex-councillor at the City of Moreland many years ago, made the point last year that um, it's got... Uh, uh, a taste of the Bjocky Peterson regime in Queensland where mm. you couldn't have a rally and they'd shut down rallies um, and the police would get stuck into people. So, you know, that brings back memories of the anti-apartheid protests, the Springbok tours, that kind of stuff. And you had to seek permission from the government. Mm-hmm. So, again, here 
you need to seek permission from the government, being local government, um, to do a rally, for example. Mm. Um, there's no appeal mechanism, by the way. Uh, I've gone through the document with a very fine-tooth comb, and the decision seems, uh, on, on first blush, that it's final. There's no appeal mechanism. Uh, I can appeal a parking fine in the City of Moreland. I can go to the Magistrates' Court. That's mm. all good. Um, but if I seek to do a rally, such as, let's say, the rally where there was a pretty um, pretty um, uh, heartfelt, spontaneous rally down Sydney Road when Jill Maher uh, was murdered mm. a number of years ago, um, that is something that I think is, is a, certainly a positive for the people in the area. Mm. It shows that they care about people. It shows that they care about society and how to change society. Um, but I can assure you that those rally organisers didn't approach council for permission it mm. was done uh, and it was a good thing and to have the power for a local municipality such as the city of Moreland to have uh, the right to say no to that kind of um, activity um, I think is, is a slippery slope, I think it's pretty pretty dangerous um, so that's something that we're very mindful of uh, uh, my personal view is to um, is certainly to oppose the laws um, we've got the, uh, the event this Sunday at 12 o'clock, Bunjuk Town Hall, Busker Free Speech. So if you're a busker, if you know a busker, if you want to become a busker, come along to Bunjuk Town Hall. We'll be there from 12 o'clock. Um, it'll be the first of a number of events um, as the public consultation will close on the 20th of August. Uh, there'll be a number of um, uh, submissions that will be made by organisations and individuals, no doubt. Um, so uh, watch this space because this is pretty important um, the regulation of public life the regulation of political life the regulation of public space by local government is becoming increasingly common and at some point you have to fight back you need to push back hmm. um, otherwise these intimidating and aggressive fitness trainers are going to be running the place <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> which yeah. really worries me yeah. I do just have a, a bit of a question for David because um, from my understanding you have a bit of experience um, across different sort of working in different local councils um, how do these kind of laws compare to sort of other you know local councils around Melbourne because from my understanding there's actually lots uh, a lot of these draconian things have um, and or could have been implemented in other local municipalities. Yeah, sure. Look, it wouldn't surprise me that there's some similarities in some of the inner metropolitan um, councils. Um, I haven't done any sort of in-depth analysis of the different 79 different local government authorities um, in Victoria, but I imagine there would be um, a bit of similarity, um, certainly in the metropolitan area. Um, certainly the City of Melbourne, I've got a long history of this kind of stuff, being in the CBD and... Um, there's been some tension about that um, with buskers, um, with street performers, uh, street artists uh, and the like. Um, so there's, a, there's, that, there's certainly a common theme emerging over time. And again, if I just go back to that comment I just made just previously, it's just about um, some, you need to some, some pushback to these things because they currently exist in a fairly expansive form. Um, and when you look at the existing laws... There's interpretation, there's misinterpretation, there's a whole range of things that are getting regulated. It's perfectly, I think it's perfectly normal for a, uh, a city council to say to people who are running a business, you need to have a permit for that street furniture because you are using um, public land for commercial purposes and that might be one or two hundred dollars a year and you might be regulated and you might need to have a safety inspection or a risk assessment to make sure that there's no risk to public safety. Not that there ever would be with tables and chairs outside a cafe. I couldn't see that being 
on its you know on its merits being a, a public danger. But there is a role for that. Um, one of the other um, things that is a concern is that um, does the council become uh, a de facto um, staging point for what really is uh, the role of the Victoria Police? So if people are out of control, if people are acting inappropriately, people um, have the Victoria Police to fall back on, not the local uh, council and their authorised officers. So the ASU represents uh, authorised officers and local laws uh, employees across the state, and there's certainly a concern amongst the union itself and amongst the membership that um, do we end up these local laws officers being placed into potentially quite tricky and quite volatile situations where really that is the role of the, the Victoria Police. Whether we like them or hate them, the Victoria Police have a role to play um, and it's certainly not a role that should be um, uh, sent down to local laws officers in councils. I think that's, that's pretty dangerous hmm. for, the, for the local laws officers themselves. I yeah. wouldn't want them to be placed in that, in, uh, that situation of, of such um, potential um, uh, risks to their, their own personal health and safety because they're not police officers. Hmm. I hope, I hope that kind of makes a bit of sense because there's, hmm. there's some industrial relations implications. If, if, if this draft local law is, is adopted, then it would flow down to a potential change to what staff may or may not be required to do in certain circumstances. Hmm. So there's, there's a flow and effect there too to direct staff at Moreland. Hmm. Yeah, that reminds me of um, basically when the city of Melbourne was trying to implement this sort of you know ban on homelessness, um, that there was this concern sort of raised up by activists because I was in the um, the meetings that um, that you know it would there would be a workplace safety issue um, for the authorised officers. The authorised officers were to like say implement these laws because it basically could, you know, put them in danger because, you know, some of the homeless people could, you know, respond quite aggressively to, you know, being forced to move and, and so on. So that was that was a concern that was kind of put forward in that um, to your campaign and particular instance of a local law. <coughs> yeah, it certainly has that, uh, that potential effect. So what we've got at the moment is a draft um, local law uh, that's been put out for public comment. One of the funny things is, uh, you, you know, in, in local government, in state government, in federal government, you, you hear regularly, um, both through uh, through all parties, about openness and transparency and accountability. So there'll be people listening today, there'll be people uh, waking up today in the city of Moreland that will be blissfully unaware that this local law has been proposed. Um, I can't find it on any of the social media um, platforms. Um, it's in page two or page three of their, their web page under public consultation. Um, it's not being um, vigorously promoted, despite the fact that it affects every resident and ratepayer and visitor to the municipality. It's one of the more um, important issues to affect the whole population, and yet it is seemingly, at this point in time, seems to be um, uh, very, very poorly um, uh, promoted, for want of a better word. You just... Mm-hmm. You, I, I got the recent edition of Inside Moreland from the council. No reference to that in that document. Can't find it on Twitter, can't find it on Facebook, can't find it um, on Instagram, can't find it anywhere. Yeah, it's one of the more wide-ranging and broad propositions that's been put by the city of Moreland, and yet the, the public um, can't find it. You have, to, you have to hunt it down. So there's a question for me in my mind about the level of genuine public engagement with the people who put the councillors um, and, uh, ipso facto, the CEO into these positions 
Um, I'm not aware of any councillor, I'm not aware of anyone in the state of Victoria that, that was elected last year um, on a platform to you know, regulate such public space. You know, it it's, wasn't part of anyone's political platform. Mm. Um, it wasn't a case of vote for me because I will um, force buskers to pay $300 for a permit. No one was elected on that platform. Um, save us from the scourge of fitness trainers. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. The anti-fitness trainer brigade. That's mm-hmm. an interesting concept. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's, I just think that uh, there's no public meeting. Um, I'll certainly be asking for a public meeting. I think there'll be other people out there that will ask for a public meeting um, because people are elected to those positions and they need uh, to hear what the public say. Um, and free speech should just be that. Um, sure, there's uh, some restrictions on that in terms of defamation and you can't call someone... Um, you know, a mass murderer, if they're not a mass murderer, I get that. Um, but free speech is essentially free speech, and it shouldn't come with a price. It shouldn't come with a, uh, an administrative process. <laughs> Otherwise, it's liable for those people who issue it, those organisations, to be subject to political influence from elsewhere, either internal or external. And I think it's just silly. It's pretty silly in my mind. You know, mm. I don't know where it comes from, other than coming out of the, uh, the anti-fascist rally from uh, last year and the attempts, the, the, the under-the-radar attempts perhaps by the Victoria Police to try and shut it down uh, mm. by using council, um, as their puppet for want of a better phrase, um, to um, not issue a permit for a rally. And again, go back to my earlier comment, uh, having permits for rallies um, is a slippery slope. Mm. Just, uh, and it's not the role of local government. It's, uh, it's the role of people to do as they see fit. It's the role of people to act appropriately. And if they act inappropriately, then there's consequences of that in all manner of way, whether it's criminal charges or whether it's someone just saying, hey, we've got a no dickhead policy. Don't be a dickhead. You know, <laughs> I mean, it's that simple sometimes, <laughs> is it not? <laughs> Yet we have local laws to regulate some of this rubbish. <laughs> so anyway, it's just, uh, it's disturbing and it needs to be, uh, needs to be counted and, um, these things need to be um, uh, put back into the dustbin of history, I think, yeah. and a complete and total review of the existing local laws because there's all manner of things in there that are just strange, mm-hmm. genuinely strange. Yeah. All right, so we're running um, low on time. We're just about to get to 8 a.m. and on our program, we usually that's the time we get into the activist gun. So, um, David Nunn, thanks for coming into the studio um, today. Yeah, thank thanks. you. And we'll catch you on uh, Sunday, over 12 noon at uh, Brunswick Town Hall. Bring, uh, bring your bucking gear. Yeah, indeed. <laughs> Cheers. Alrighty. So, yes, David Nunns, ASU organiser and long-term Moreland resident, helping organise the rally on Sunday. Alrighty. You are on 3CR. It is 7.59am. Just left. Like some food for thought? Tune in to Radical Philosophy with discussions on freedom, happiness, knowledge, evil and rational argument. With words from Hawthorne, Tapman, Jenkins, Hutchinson, Hirsi Ali and Plumwood. So tune in to 3CR Community Radio 8.55 on your AM dial on Thursday afternoon from 3.30 until 4 o'clock. And let's get radical about philosophy. I'm Tash Sultana, and you are listening to 3CR. Please subscribe. Do yourselves a massive favour. Thank you very much.
O'Rourke. All right, it's um, time for the <coughs> sorry about that. Um, the activist calendar. So if you want to find out how you can get active in the next um, few weeks and you know make a difference in this world, um, then this is the activist calendar. So now today there's actually a number of events happening. Um, there's going to be um, a rally protecting country from Adani. Um, basically, this will be held. Um, this is a, a part of the Stop Adani campaign. Um, and it's going to be kind of, you know, focusing on the kind of native title amendments that the LNP and the Labor Party have, you know, been sort of trying to get through to basically, you know, build this Adani coal mine. So that will be, the speakers will include um, Aboriginal environmental activists living in the Darabin area, and it will be taking place at 4pm outside David Feeney's office, at which is at 159 High Street in Preston. There will also be another protest happening today um, in response to kind of like the, you know, the, um, the the increasingly, you know, proven that, you know, Manus is not actually safe for refugees. Um, so we're demanding that we bring them here now, organised by Refugee Action Collective. There will be an urgent sit-in action today at 5.30pm at the State Library. Actually, not actually the State Library. It will be actually be at... Um, this Burke Street um, on the Swanson Street side. Saturday, the um, 5th to the 10th of August, um, there's apparently a film screening, um, The Guardians of the Strait. Um, you probably have to just um, search it up because I don't really think I have time to really go into detail. Um, there'll be, on Saturday, there'll be a protest, Stop Turkey's Invasion of Syria. Um, this is a rally that will be in support of the Kurdish struggle and, you know, against the kind of discrimination they face in Turkey. Um, that's organised by Australians for Kurdistan and the Kurdish Democratic Community, and that is going to be happening at 1pm at the State Library. Um, following after that, in relation to our discussion about Venezuela, there'll be a rally, Solidarity with the People of Venezuela Against the Right-Wing Attacks, um, and that will be happening right after the Kurdish rally at 2.30pm at the State Library. Um, on Sunday, um, as discussed before, there'll be a bus for free speech um, in response to the Moreland Council. You know, we talked all along um, about the general local laws. Um, that will be happening at 12pm at the Brunswick Town Hall, which is a corner of Sydney Road and Dawson Street in Brunswick. Um, there'll be a commemoration of Hiroshima and Nagasaki Day. Um, basically, um, there'll be, this will be happening at 2pm at the Utilitarian Church at 1110 Gray Street in East Melbourne. Um, there'll also be another, um, event, um, in relation to that happening at the 4pm at the Friends of the Earth, um, office, which is at 312 Swanson Street in Fitzroy. Um, next Tuesday, um, there'll be a protest, no student fee increases, um, that will be hosted by Make Education Free Again, and that'll be at 2pm at the State Library. Uh, though just to give a bit of context, this will all, it's also the same day as like a kind of NTEU, um, National Day of Action. So if you're a member of the NTEU, um, just check, um, with your union about what kind of actions will be happening at your university. On, on, <coughs> no, <coughs> sorry. On on that same day, on Tuesday, August eighth, there'll be a public meeting on Australia's refugee policy. They'll be happening at five pm at the Melbourne Law School, one eight five Pelham Street in Parkville. Though on Wednesday, there'll be a rally defending standard public housing at twelve pm at the Parliament House on String Street, um, in the city. <coughs> 
And um, there'll be a film screening, The Wanted 80, the Palestinian and Fatai anniversary screening, and that'll be happening at 6.30pm at the Shreds Hall um, on the next Wednesday at August the 9th. All right, um, Zane, do you want to make any announcements? Uh, nah. Just make sure you come along on Sunday to the Brunswick, um, to the free, the busk for free speech if you're in the hood, if you're in the area. Yeah. All right, speaking of Moreland, there's another, there'll be another protest. Moreland says Stop Adani, and, um, in relation to Stop Adani groups across the country have been raising the pressure on Combat's board to rule out funding for Adani's disastrous coal mine, and it will be join us for our second Moreland action, this time in Glenroy, and that will be outside the Commonwealth Bank in Glenroy at the 781 Pasco Vale Road in Glenroy. On Saturday, August the 12th, um, there'll be the Melbourne Anarchist Book Fair happening from 10am to 6pm at the Brunswick Town Hall at 233 Sydney Road. Um, there'll be a fundraiser on Sunday, as mentioned earlier in the program, Justice for Elijah, um, you know, less in, they'll be at, um, they'll be one way to support, um, uh, Elijah, Elijah's family, um, an innocent victim of a race hate crime, and that will be at, from 5 to 10 p.m. August the 13th on the Sunday at the Bella Union, which is at level one, um, Trades Hall, Carton South. Um, in terms of other events, there's actually a number of, um, kind of film screenings happening as part of the Melbourne International Film Festival. And one of those film screenings is Inside Mattis. Um, and it's, this is a, might be a bit interesting, but it's actually going to be kind of like a VR type film experience, um, where, you know, people who, um, view it will have a kind of get, a kind of virtual reality experience of, you know, what Manus Island is actually like, um, so and all, so that that could be that would be an interesting um, thing to experience. Um, on Thursday, the August the seventh, um, there'll be exposition art exhibition, and it's kind of like a collection documenting the architecture and residence of public housing in Northern Melbourne. Um, there'll be that will be happening from six to ten pm at the Collingwood Gallery, um, from two at two nine two Smith Street in Collingwood. Following that, on August the 18th to the 20th, there'll be the Radical Ideas Conference, Sparking the Resistance, um, and they'll feature guest speakers from the UK, a uh, Filipino guest speaker, and it'll um, be happening at the uh, Electronical Trade Union Building at 200 Arden Street in North Melbourne. Um, for the agenda, um, go to the Radical Ideas website, which is www.radicalideasconference.com. So, yeah, that should be quite exciting. Um, Conference to attend with um, lots of different workshops and sessions. Um, on Saturday, on Saturday, August the 26th, there'll be a protest fair go for migrants, um, stopping um, in response to Dutton citizenship bill. That'll be at 2 p.m. at the Parliament House, um, Parliament House. Um, in the city, and there'll also be on that day, on Saturday, the August 26th, uh, public meeting on climate change and activism. What is the difference between different factions of climate change activism, and how do they come together in cohesive action? Anna Kareen, the climate deadlock, and Indigenous climate activist Amelia Telford discuss the current state of environmental change activism and where it's heading. So that's going to be a free event. Um, it's part of the Melbourne Writers' Festival, from my understanding, and that's at 11.30am at the Acme Centre. 
on August the 27th, there'll be a March um, to Save Lives um, Rally for a Safe Injecting Room in North Richmond, and that will be at one Jonah's Street in Richmond. Um, there'll be another public meeting on that same day, po- um, protests and petitions, how to change the world, and that will be uh, another free event at the Acme at the Cube at Federation Square of the City. And then there'll be uh, the Australian-Palestinian Advocacy Network Annual Dinner, a major fundraiser and a great opportunity to share an evening with others who deeply care about Palestine. And, and um, early bird tickets are only available until July 15th, um, so that's already times past. And that's going to be at Aurelia Receptions at 149 Dong Street, Brunswick East. And also happening from Saturday, September the 9th to September 20th, there will be the IPAN National Conference at the MUA office at 46 Island Street in North Melbourne. Okay, so we're going to be um, in the process of starting our final interview for the program. Um, Dennis, do you have anything to share? What's been happening in my ha- while I have been away from Green, Green Life Radio, huh? Uh, that, that's probably um, going to have to be saved. We don't think we have time for that. <laughs> um, but um, listeners, stay tuned that we'll probably be doing a bit of an intensive kind of discussion with Dennis because he's you know, been travelling around or around Europe, so he probably has lots to discuss. So we're going ready for our next and final interview. Yes, we'll just play a um, quick announcement, and then we've got... Um Brimbank Mayor John Hedditch and uh, community campaigner Peter Thompson who are going to talk to us uh, about some issues with um, moving the Vic Roads office uh, in at Sunshine to a different location. Uh, so, yeah, they'll, they'll tell us more about that in a second. So we'll just have a quick announcement. We will not negotiate with minor state of title government or anyone on, on our culture, on, on our land. You know, if people say, oh, you're going to finish up with nothing, well, then so be it. But at least our hearts will tell us that we did not sell out our country and our culture and heritage for a few scungy dollars. Subscribe to 3CR so that your dollars support Indigenous voices and the struggle for land justice. For Aboriginal people, the greatest grief of all is seeing the country destroyed. And somewhere along the line, we have to realise that we don't actually have the right to do that, that nothing we've ever done has given us the right to do that. Now, you know where I stand on this, because I'm so simple-minded, I think we've just got to admit that this is an Aboriginal country. Just do it. Alrighty, welcome back. It is 11 minutes past 8. It is Friday morning, the 4th of August. You're listening to Green Life Radio on 3CR. And uh, on the line... Sorry, just pressing some buttons. On the line this morning, we have got Brimbank Mayor John Hedditch and uh, a local community organiser, Peter Thompson. Uh, and they want to talk to us about an important... Uh, problem that's come up with the relocation of the Vic Roads office there. Uh, welcome, John and Peter. Thanks very much. So, yeah, can you tell us, uh, what? give uh, give listeners a bit of an introduction to what's what's happening there with the relocation of Vic Roads office? Um, yes, well, uh, last year um, the council administrators were approached to um, provide some land for a new Vic Roads site in Sunshine, 
and part of that agreement was that um, the licence testing and roadworthies would be recited because they won't be available at the new centre. And unfortunately, the state government has uh, reneged on that decision and there's basically at the end of the year there'll be no licence testing or um, roadworthies uh, in this area whatsoever. And it's quite huge because we also cater for the city of Miribinong, uh, parts of the city of Hobson's Bay and parts of... Um, City of Mooney Valley because they don't have one either. So, um, along with the support of council, uh, I've been um, campaigning to uh, to get the decision reversed. Yeah, right. So, how many people in that broader area uh, tend to use that uh, that Sunshine Vic Road Centre? Uh, John here, Dane. Uh, yeah. Uh, we we have a population of two hundred thousand people in Brimbank alone. So uh, we assume that a large proportion of people from this area come to the licence testing and roadworthy and other services of Vic Road's office from our Sunshine, Sunshine office. Uh, that office, uh, its back office functions are going up the road to Withers Street to the new building that's being constructed at the moment and a number of other services are going there but the licence testing and, and others aren't. So we would assume that the, the Brimbank population heads there uh, there's parts of Meribodong, Footscray and Braybrook and various uh, communities around that way. Uh, down Hobson's Bay Way with uh, Spotswood and, and Seddon and uh, Spotswood and uh, Newport and parts of Williamstown also come this way for, for those services as as well. But we're waiting on data from Big Roads. Uh, we were going to get some data in July from them. We had a presentation from the Big Roads uh, people or a couple of months back and uh, we asked for all this data just to see exactly where people are coming from to go to Sunshine. But there's a huge catchment. goes all the way out to Carolyn Springs. So mm. uh, if people weren't able to come here for their licence testing, they would have to drive to uh, Sunbury or uh, Werribee or Melton and that... Or Broadmeadows. And uh, that's a long drive and with the roads getting more and more congested and... Uh, only going to get worse over time. We see it as a, a, a really a decision that needs to be corrected by the minister. Yeah, it seems like if it was a regional centre of, you know, two hundred and fifty thousand, three hundred thousand people, it'd be a no-brainer. You wouldn't be shutting down the uh, or, or getting rid of those couple of crucial functions of the of the local Vic Roads office. I mean, <laughs> what else do they do other than license testing and roadworthy? So I, I would have thought that's pretty much bread and butter stuff for Vic Road's office. Yeah, well, that, that was uh, the, the opinion of the community around here as well. And uh, I think uh, we're, as, as a council, we are uh, advocating for our community. We're a community first council. But uh, bread and butter, those services are. Uh, it's services like license renewal and so on that will go on from the... Uh, the office, the new office here in, uh, in Sunshine, but uh, it's not the same as licence testing. There are a lot of young people, uh, a lot of young people who are time poor and cash poor and driving long distances, um, taking time away from work. All those sorts of things are, um, are things that need to be considered. Hmm. And, Reconsidered. And so this uh, parcel of land where the new office is to be, you've, you've said that um, Brimbank Council is... Uh, sort of like what gifted or, or leased that parcel of land is it is the parcel of land suitable is it too small like what's what's Vic Rhodes's reasoning for not having these functions at the new office 
Um, Vic Rose uh, can probably best tell you that, but the I, I won't I won't speak for them. But I, I think the yeah, Ned correct a couple of things there. The the council sold uh, a block of land to a, a developer who was commissioned by the state government to put together a, uh, a building here for Vic Rose, and that transaction happened like they all do with value or general valuations and all that. So it was a, uh, a transaction that was conducted by the previous administration. Uh, that happened. The block was uh, big enough for the functions that were to be put on it. So a six-storey building close to the railway station uh, to provide a whole lot of uh, Vic Roads back office functions so people could easily travel from wherever they were living uh, on the railway to here and uh, go to work there. So that was the thinking. And the uh, the building is well advanced at the moment. It's sitting up six storeys high, being fitted out in, uh, in the middle of sunshine near the railway station at the moment. So um, it's been built fit for purpose and uh, purpose wasn't to provide licence testing and roadworthies. And in the end, that service, that licence testing and roadworthy service was supposed to be taken up by the Sunbury's and Broadmeadows and, and Wyndham operations. And uh, I don't know how that was to happen. You'd have to talk to Vic Rhodes about that. Yeah. I can just provide a little bit extra information there. Is the crazy thing is, is these other four centres, um, Vic Rhodes are going to be spending money on uh, extending those offices and uh, building on extra and all that sort of thing it's probably going to cost a lot more than what it would in just simply relocating the Sunshine Centre uh, for licence testing. You know, it's just crazy. It seems a no-brainer. Hmm. And, and do you reckon it's, it seems on the face of it like it's a, a rationalisation, like a cost-saving exercise, as you say? Um, well, that's the trouble. It won't be cost-saving in the end because the cost will probably be higher fixing those four centres up. Um, than it will be just having one new one or one relocation of the licensing. Hmm. I think the uh, on the cost side too, um, it might be a rationalisation and it might be uh, efficiencies for Vic Roads, but for the community uh, there are a set of costs involved for all the people who have to uh, travel that extra distance, take time off work and so on. Hmm. And that's the problem with decision-making like this, which is very siloed and very inward-looking. Um, and I guess uh, that's why we're encouraging Vic Roads and uh, advocating to the Minister to uh, reverse this decision. Uh, it doesn't make sense. Okay. And uh, so you, you said uh, before, John, that you had an undertaking uh, from the Minister that, or, or that Brimbank Council had an undertaking from the, from the Minister or from Vic Roads that those services would be provided at the, at the new office. What, what's the minister said about this? Like, at what level no, is this the Vic Rhodes bureaucracy that's primarily to blame for this, or is this the Victorian government? Like, who's who's made this call? Uh, I, I don't think um, I said that, but no, I I said that um, at the uh, the submissions night last year. Um, that's what we were told was that. Um, they would be relocated, or they would find another um, site in Sunshine to um, to provide these services. And unfortunately, that um, went out the window. Oh, okay. Yeah, right. 
And have you uh, have you spoken to the uh, minister from from the Andrews government? Like, have you had any indication there? Is this a? It seems like a, a winnable campaign. Uh, we've we've written to the minister. We've had conversations. Uh, Peter's organised a number of rallies down at the uh, a couple of rallies down at the Vic Rose office here in Sunshine, and 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 we've we've been uh, speaking to uh, people there. And uh, the minister, uh, we understand, is having a look at it. The Vic Rose uh, hierarchy that came out and presented to the council a couple of months back uh, said very clearly that they were actively listening to the community on this one. So we were encouraged by that. Uh, they were going to go away and uh, pull some data together, come back and do a presentation to us towards the end of July. Uh, we, haven't, we haven't seen or heard from them yet, but we're expecting to in the near future. Uh, so I think the, uh, we've written to the Minister. The, the Council moved a motion at one of its meetings a few months ago to write to the Minister expressing the Council's concern about the decision not to uh, run the licence testing and roadworthy service in, uh, in Brimbank anymore. And uh, we've done that. Uh, we're waiting to hear, uh, I guess, on the decision. We're, we're very hopeful that the Minister will see the logic in the community's argument and the, uh, and the arguments that Peter and his, uh, his team of people are putting together. It's, um, it's compelling, we think, uh, and it's uh, a much-needed service, uh, licence testing service and... Uh, roadworthy service here in the, here in Sunshine or in, in the surrounding area where we're not uh, too concerned about where it, where it goes as long as there is a service in this area that can feed this big catchment that's going to miss out. Yeah, yeah. All right, and just wrapping it up, in the interim, uh, while, while you're waiting to hear back, how can uh, community members from the Brimbank area or the broader catchment that would use that centre who are concerned about this, how can people um, you know, make their voice heard? Um, well, we do have another protest rally organised for Friday, the 18th of, uh, of August, just uh, two weeks away. Yeah. Um, and that's at 12 noon um, at the Vic Road Centre in uh, the corner of Ballarat Road and Harvester Road in Sunshine. So uh, anybody who would uh, you know like to come along and, and support us at that rally, um, that would be great. We've also got uh, petitions. Um, circulating uh, pretty much around the um, the area, so um, people can always uh, sign petitions. Uh, they can also write to um, Luke and Allen, the Minister for Roads and Safety. Um, in fact, that's probably a very good one to either phone or write there and uh, express their concerns as well. So there's there's quite a few different avenues. Yeah. Okay. Good stuff. All right, well, um, yeah, best of luck with the campaign and, uh, yeah, stopping the um, the bureaucrats from actually hobbling the, the Vic Road service in what is a, quite a um, densely populated and growing chunk of the broader Melbourne area. Yeah, it certainly is. And, and the biggest problem, too, is, as John said, the extra costs. Um, driving uh, schools are probably going to have to charge for double lessons. You know, the first lesson's going to be getting to these other areas uh, and then the second cost um, is going to be for the actual lessons. So my big fear is that I can see a lot of young people turning around and saying, well, no, to hell with it, I'll just drive unlicensed. And uh, it's certainly something that I, you know, well, I think none of us want to see happening. Hmm. Yeah, yeah. All right, well, uh, yes... 
John, uh, John Hedditch, uh, Brembank Mayor and Community Campaigner Peter, Peter Thompson, thank you very much for talking with us this morning. Thanks very much. Uh, just in closing, if anybody does um, want to sign a petition or get a hold of a petition for me, uh, they can certainly contact um, you and, uh, and I'm happy for you to give them my details. Yeah, okay, cool. If anyone does want to do that, 94198377 and, uh, yeah, we can pass on Peter's uh, contact details for you. All right, cheers. Thank you. Have a good morning. All right, uh, yes, uh, Brimback Mayor John Hedditch and Community Campaigner Peter Thompson there. It is 8.24 and you are listening to 3CR. 3CR are selling kefir Palestinian scarves in support of the last factory that produces them in Hebron, Palestine. All profits will be donated to the reconstruction efforts in Gaza and support Palestinian industry. These are traditional scarves available in red and black, or you can choose from a modern design. Go to 3cr.org.au slash shop to buy online or drop into the station during business hours. Alrighty. Uh, it's Green Left Radio. You're listening to 3CR 25 past 8 on Friday morning, the 4th of August. So we're going to wrap it up pretty much. Um, Dennis. Just uh, just another quick plug-in for the rally on, uh, tomorrow at 2.30 p.m. at State Library, the Latin America Solidarity Network, which... Um, has been very active in organizing various uh, events and forums um, on the issue of uh, human rights and anti-imperialism in Latin America, has called a um, rally and a, and, a, and a celebration in support of the newly elected Constituent Assembly uh, in Venezuela. So come along to State Library to... Um, you know, uh, get uh, uh, get to know the details of the uh, new democratic body in uh, Venezuela, as well as to uh, help defend the South American country against uh, further attempts at destabilization by the U.S. Uh, uh, U.S. supported right-wing opposition in the country. That's 2:30 p.m. tomorrow, uh, Saturday at State Library of Victoria. Okay. And then that's followed by that um, Kurdistan Solidarity Rally. That's right. Rally, that's right. It? So at 1pm, I think, at 1pm, the, 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 the Australians for Kurdistan. Okay, so Australians for Kurdistan first, yes. and then the Venezuela Solidarity after. Exactly. It's a, dou- it's a double whammy. A tomorrow. double whammy of international solidarity. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, cool. All right. Um, well, that's about that for this morning. Stick around, because Beyond Zero Emissions... Uh, coming up after us and they are once again going to be talking about all things climate change solutions alright cheers Jake. Sign, and I'll, we'll see you next week well we yeah. won't see you we don't really see <laughs> any of our listeners yeah we'll see you in our minds alright <laughs> alright this brings us to the end of the show You have been listening to Friday Morning Breakfast with Green Left Radio, brought to you by the Green Left Weekly Newspaper, which provides a weekly source of alternative information which aims to inspire action to put people and the environment first. 
If you would like to subscribe to the newspaper and get it delivered to your door, you can do so by visiting the website at greenleft.org.au or call 1-800-634-206. For new subscribers, it is only $10 for the first six issues. Repeats of the show and interviews are podcasts on our homepage on the 3CR website. Thank you for listening. You are tuned into 3CR Community Radio, 855 Digital on the AM dial and streaming live on 3cr.org.au.